Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Lawrence Bradford Perkins, FAIA, or Brad, as most people would call him, as my guest today on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Brad is joining me here in our New York studios live. Brad is the co-founder of Perkins Eastman, a global firm that specializes in architecture, interior design, urban design, planning, landscape architecture, and much more. Headquartered in New York City, the company was founded by Brad and Mary Jean Eastman, FAIA. Brad has directed major projects in all of Perkins Eastman's key practice areas and has served as principal in charge of work around the world. These projects range from small nonprofit organizations to senior living to major, major healthcare facilities, mixed use developments, even master planning of entire cities around the world. Perkins Eastman has over 1,100 employees in 24 locations worldwide. The firm has completed assignments in more than 60 countries and across five continents and has received 800 awards. I'm sure it's more by now. Brad comes from a long line of successful architects, which we'll discuss later more in detail. His family could be described as a dynasty of architecture, if such a thing exists. Brad has lectured at Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, USC, Texas A&M. He teaches at City College of New York and the University of Hawaii and is a faculty member of Cornell's College of Architecture, Art and Planning. Additionally, he has authored nine books. Pretty impressive. Brad, thank you so much for being my guest here today for uh, and for coming all the way here. Well, thank you, Christian. Coming all the way here is... <laughs> It's relative, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I just want to tell a little story here. How you and I, you and I met um, really initially when we were working on a, a project together, Times Square TSX project. We had a recent episode about that um, on this podcast as well with the contractor and some others. Um, and I admit, when we first met, I was secretly hoping you were going to take the job away from us because we were completely ill-equipped to handle this job. Um, but I'm very grateful for the support that you you all offered, sort of reaching out and helping us uh, with your firm, helping our firm, and eventually overcoming the challenges that we had and turning that around. Um, I think it's a project both can be very proud of one. Yeah, absolutely. And so at the end of the day, you know, I always learned that architects were in competition with each other and, you know, we should fight to the death to win the projects and not share secrets or anything like that. And part of this podcast is really to just talk about architects and what we do well and what we don't do well. At this stage in your career, how is your perception of the relationship between architects collaborating over time changed? Well, I've always actually felt that uh, that a lot of projects have required really close collaboration between architects. We've particularly overseas, where it's almost always mandatory, and uh, we. But even here in this country, we have worked with 
other architects across the U.S. on projects. And, and frankly, as projects have gotten larger and more complex and requiring more specialized capabilities, teaming is really the right thing to do. It, there are some firms that are better at collaborating than <laughs> others. Uh, there are some who still believe in that uh, <clears throat> that only they can do the project and they don't want anybody else involved. But that's becoming probably the minority. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I see that in our practice, too. I mean, we're always yeah. collaborating, whether it's with you or other architecture firms. I, I, I totally agree. What what has been uh, your biggest frustrations with the architecture industry in general? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think the the basic business model for architecture um, has really never been a very good one, and uh, somehow we, in a what is still a highly competitive profession, and uh, it where some of our own self-inflicted wounds have made it economically a more challenging profession than say <laughs> law or accounting or, or even medicine. So it's, uh, so the business model, which I think is about to be very much disrupted by AI, um, maybe we will <clears throat> emerge from it more, uh, more like a valued consulting firm than uh, somebody who produces a lot of drawings that most owners don't even look at. So yeah, that's a good point. So going down that path of AI, which I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, what, what are your thoughts behind AI and how architects may work with it or against it? Or <laughs> Well, I mean, I can't claim to be an expert, I would, but obviously the impact of technology, which really didn't start until uh, <clears throat> desktop computing uh, and and all the things that have come with it. I mean, remember the iPhone is, what, 16 years old. When I first started working overseas, I communicated back to the home office by telex. <laughs> I, you know, and then you could book a phone call. You know, now you can stand in the middle of a rice paddies in Vietnam and have a video call with somebody in another country, uh, it's all these things have been accelerating. And, and now <clears throat> if AI lives up to its potential where, you know, I think the big drafting room of the past is probably uh, a dodo bird. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, that's probably in some respects a good thing. And, and the profession is adapted to the changes in technology reasonably quickly. It, the business model is still the same, but yeah. But uh, I, I'm actually hoping that it's a positive change. Do you foresee it where the designers are still conceptually designing, you know, themselves, yeah. and then maybe some of the production is being done with the the AI? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think taking somebody with seven years or five years of expensive training and then turning them into draftsmen is uh, is part of the bad business model. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree. Especially when there are people uh, in other countries who are at one quarter the cost who are more than willing to do the work and uh, want to do the work. <clears throat> and uh, 
and with technology now can do the work. Mm -hmm. What what are your thoughts on black cape architects? And do you believe that firms like yours and mine can produce equally compelling architecture as the you know quote unquote black cape architects? Well, uh, of course, <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean there's some of what you refer to as black cape architects who I have great respect for, and I think are exceptional talents and uh, and as long as they don't believe all their own press releases uh you know they're <laughs> uh, you know i think they are great leaders in the profession and then there are others where i think that they're a function of pr right and not necessarily that much substance so yeah, yeah. Because I look at you know some of the work that your firm has produced, and and at a smaller scale, obviously the the, the work that we've produced. But I, I would say the work that you've produced overseas, especially, is as extraordinary as any other you know architect out there. So, and I, I feel like the more corporate architects don't get the credit, you know that yeah. that, that well is some deserved. some do. I mean, I you know I mean Skimmer is a Merrill. It's been a leader, you know for basically my lifetime and uh and you know they're about as corporate as they come but they you know continue to reinvent themselves and 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 do work that's equal in my opinion to what you're referring to as the black caves <laughs> uh, or stark attacks i guess yeah, is another yeah. word <laughs> but um you know and, and there are other i think once you become a large firm it's tough not to get labeled a corporate firm, but yeah. the reality is, you know, given our practice, you know, I don't, on the inside, it doesn't look very corporate. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I agree. So if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about your fellow architects? I, I would say that one thing that over the years is the sort of cattiness about other architects, mm. um, I find a bit tiresome, you know, that there is just a lot of sort of <clears throat> knocking other architects, uh, which I don't think serves any purpose. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and then as far as architects and training goes, and you obviously do a lot of education and we'll talk about that. Do you think that it's a profession where we should have a little bit more on the business side of, yeah. of, of architecture training and you know, go to yeah. business school or something like that? Well, I feel pretty strongly that given how complex both the profession of architecture is now and the, and the projects we were working on, the total almost complete absence of business training or management training of is really is a handicap for architects. And yeah. I mean, I do did an MBA and, uh, and I didn't do it necessarily uh, initially for the right reasons, but it turned out to be an invaluable part of my education. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'd say if that, uh, that's a regret I have is not, is, is actually getting my, ma not getting my master's degree. I, I very much enjoyed my master's degree and worked with some of those black ape architects were extraordinary mm -hmm. people. Um, 
but the business training is definitely where I lacked. And I've learned that kind of on the job, basically. Yeah, well, that's what most architects, yeah, <laughs> yeah. most architects. And, and I mean, I had extraordinary advantages in the, you know, I had a grandfather and father who ran large successful practices and I at least, you know, kind of had a really good introduction of what the job really was. And, right. uh, but, uh, but even, you know, they both learned on the job, and uh, and but it it certainly helped for me to have seen that. But then, you know, my two years at Stanford were extraordinary in terms of helping. So. Yeah. So so that's a perfect segue into the sort of let's call it the architecture dynasty that I referred to. Um, I'm not sure if I have this correct, but your your grandfather Dwight Perkins um, founded um, Perkins Fellow. Fellows yeah. and Hamilton in 1894. Um, then your father, Lawrence Bradford Perkins, co-founded Perkins and Will, which is still very much in existence today and an enormous global firm. Um, and then around 1985, more or less, you you founded Perkins Eastman with, a, with Mary Jean. Uh, yeah, really 83, but 83. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I had a previous partnership in from 81 to 83 and then bought that partner out and, and Mary Jean and I went forward from there. Yeah, yeah. So so given that family history, was it, you know, you were gonna be an architect no matter what? Was that, was that a given? <laughs> well, I was, I was the, in my siblings, I was the one who liked to draw. Okay. And, you know, I, and, and uh, I went, job sites with my father and and so it was kind of and I was sent to art school from the time I was fairly young and so it was kind of assumed that and you know I didn't I was a kind of a normal kid and I didn't give a whole lot of thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up and somebody asked me I said you know maybe an architect uh, and then I went to architectural school at Cornell and began rethinking, was this really what I wanted to do? And I took a rather long break from, you know, right. transferred out of architecture school, my degree from Cornell, even though it's ironic that I've been on the faculty, I'm not teaching this year, but for 10 years, and uh, because I don't have a degree from the architectural school, and my degree is in Latin American history, so. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I finished a degree in ancient history and then realized that wasn't a career. And, and so I finished it in Latin American history a year later. So so in, in essentially you are a third generation architect in, yeah. in a sense. And I, I, um, I know a little bit about sort of generational businesses being in, I think I've told them in this thing called YPO, Young President's mm. Organization. And there's a lot of people in YPO that are you know, family businesses and generational businesses. And one thing I, my perception of that was always, hey, well, good for them. They started on third base and that's, that's really easy. And I wish I was in that situation. However, I will tell you that getting to know I would say almost all of them, the pressure of being sort of the second and third and fourth, and some of these people are fifth, you know, way down the line. It's a tremendous amount of pressure to be successful in a career that others have made a, been a success in too. Have you ever felt that along the way? Um, well, 
I didn't overlap with my father. My father retired before I came back into the profession. I mean, I took a 10 year break and um, and and so uh, I did spend four years at Perkins Will after uh, my first job back in the profession and then uh, realized that I, I it wasn't the firm for me. And I, that's when I set up the current firm. Um, I don't, I mean, I come from a family of where we were always trying to live up to our mother's standards. And, uh, you know, and I have siblings that are all very high achievers and, and, uh, and the next generation includes Pulitzer Prize winners and all sorts of other stars. So, you know, so uh, I think the pressure wasn't to live up to my father and grandfather. It was, to, as I say, you know, the influential as they were they, on, on my life and career, it was, it was the peer pressure of, of uh, just all the other members of the family. That's so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my older brother, who started in architecture and ended up being uh, head of Far Eastern Studies at Harvard for his career and chair of the economics department, he there was more pressure on me to sort of live up to him when I got to Cornell. I would, <laughs> yeah, but um, um, so tell us a little bit about that growing up experience. Where did you grow up? You know, what what did you want to be as a kid? Well, I think that was, <laughs> I think that was a deeper thought than I was having most of my uh, growing up years. But uh, I mean, I I grew up, you know, in a somewhat privileged background, and and uh, you know, I, my college application, for instance, consisted of coming down to breakfast, and the dean of arts and sciences at Cornell was staying with my parents because my mother was at the alumni association. And he said, where are you thinking about going to school? And I said, Cornell. And he said, OK. My mother filled in the forms. And, and that was and that. that. That was that. I mean, <laughs> so uh, it's but I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, um, which is a city just north of Chicago. It's where uh, Northwestern is. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I grew up in a house that my grandfather had designed and built. And I went to an elementary school that my grandfather designed and built, which was next to a park named after my grandfather. <laughs> and um, and then, uh, you know, and I had kind of a normal childhood and uh, went through public school. And uh, it was a happy childhood. As I said, I was sent to art school and I liked to draw and I had a lot of friends and it I didn't really think a whole lot about my future <laughs> until um, I, it really it came home to me when I was in architectural school that that maybe I should have done more thinking about this. And, and, uh, and, and so, but in the end, I came back and I'm very glad that I did. Yeah. Uh, it's been, a, I've had a, some of a charmed career and I've, gotten to do the sort of projects I like to do. And I've got 
do them all around the world, which I still enjoy. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's nice to be back on airplanes again. And, <laughs> and uh, so now, so I, what I didn't realize is, so your your grandfather founded his firm, your father founded his firm, and you founded your firm. They're all separate firms. Yeah. Which is awesome. So there's this entrepreneurial spirit, and that that obviously cascades through your through your entire yeah. family. Yeah. Well, my my uh, grandfather he he when he came back from MIT where he went to school he he went to work for Daniel Burnham and uh, and when Burnham was running the Great White City my grandfather ran the rest of the office and then the office was shrinking back after after uh, in 1894 and there was a big depression on and so the office was shrinking and but Burnham helped him go out on his own and got him his first commission and and uh, and the rest is history I mean he he and the other prairie school architects uh, but he he went deaf before my grand um, before my father graduated from school so he wound down his practice uh, so there really wasn't a firm for my father to go to. Mm. And um, and it was the Great Depression in 1935 when he and his college roommate, Phil Will, started Perkins and Will. And then my father retired uh, four years before I came to Perkins and Will. So I was recruited by his successors. Uh, I had been running four offices for an English firm. Um, yeah, called the Wallen Davies, and that was based in London. But I ran the Toronto, New York, Houston, and Caracas offices for them. Oh wow! At an age that makes me wonder what they were thinking when they <laughs> hired me. But so you've always been traveling internationally throughout your always, entire yeah. career. Yeah, I know that's just having gotten to know you. You you love the travel. You love. You know, doing the international projects, and and uh, I'm always jealous of where you've been and where you go. And I know after this you're leaving, and it, it's pretty extraordinary. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about Perkins Eastman itself. So the, the founding of it, it's you know, and I have some statistics here. You know, the second largest New York-based design firm per cranes, the tenth largest architectural firm in the United States, the fourth largest architecture firm in the world by revenue. Um, you know, you win your rankings and, and you know, you, you name it. Um, you have 13 offices, uh, you know. Well, 24. 24 offices, sorry, 13 in the United States. Um, you know, you're into all of these practice areas. I mean, when you and, and Mary Jean started, could you imagine that it, it would have gotten as big as it is? No. <laughs> uh, it. We, we founded the firm, we, it wasn't, you know, 27 people on day one. So, um, and we were 50 fairly quickly, uh, but it was built around the idea that, that we wanted to be really expert at a finite number of building types. The, the original number was six over time, it's grown to 16. But <laughs> I mean, there are things that we, and most of what we're interested in are project types where architecture has a real uh, um, capability of, of really helping the, the institution or client fulfill their mission and, and going to have a very positive impact on people's lives. So, 
some of the things that we focused on, and they very much relate to some of the interests my father and grandfather had, are projects that weren't necessarily all that glamorous. Uh, senior living, which is where we have the largest specialized practice in the world, um, is, is a real backwater architecture when we got into it. But, you know, demographics and other things are awoken people to the fact that this is a very important uh, specialized area of practice. And, and uh, I was in Bangkok a week ago, you know, I was walking the job site of a large high rise community retirement community that doing just outside the Bangkok airport, which I'm proud of and um, for a very, very nice client. And, um, uh, and, and in, <clears throat> I mean, schools is, is another one of our elementary and secondary schools, uh, obviously some university work as well, but schools was the core of my grandfather's practice. It was the core, it was a, the greatest love of my father in his practice. He, while he was running Perkins Will, they did a thousand schools, and it's what they built their reputation on. Um, so, but <clears throat> it was um, after we'd been in practice for about ten years, we realized that to to really live up to our our what we said we wanted to be, we had to. And at that time, we were still six or seven practice areas, each one. We said we need at least a core team of a dozen or so in each one. You multiply seven times, you know, a dozen, you get 84, you add in administrative and other stuff, you say, well, instead of being 50, we better be 100. Right. That was our five-year goal. And, and, but by the end of that year, we were 100. And then basically from 94 to 2007, we added 50 people a year. Wow. So it happened rather quickly. And then when did you start making acquisitions? Well, we did really early on. There were most of them were friends of mine. Okay. Or former partners. I mean, the remaining core of the the English firm's New York office, for instance, uh, was a planning firm, <clears throat> Buckers, Fish and Jackmar and and uh, Paul Buckhurst and I, who were a very, very close friend and colleague and uh, we said, you know, why aren't we still working together? And so that was the first and our healthcare practice was really, we went from doing some healthcare to being the biggest healthcare practice in the city when three former Perkins and Will partners, Bob Larson and Joe Shine and, and Dave Ginsburg, and Larson, Shine, Ginsburg, uh, who were a good deal older than I was, uh, looked at us as a way to, you know, as for them to have a retirement plan. <laughs> and, uh, and and they and they joined us. So this is all, this is now 25 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And, and we've, when we either are entering a new practice area or we want to strengthen, uh, an office or, you know, be in a new location. We've usually done it through acquisition to give us a solid base locally yeah. or in the in the practice area. Is there any sector that has eluded you so far that you're 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 still 
wanting to get into? Well, I'm. Mary Jean would say that I never met a practitioner I didn't like <laughs> and didn't want to do, but I think we're happy with the the mix that we have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you pretty much have them all covered. I can't even no. think of some that. Oh that no! You don't I mean, there are do. things that we, you know, we we don't do airports. We don't we don't do prisons. We don't. Uh, we're not. We're interested in retail as part of mixed use, but retail, freestanding retail, uh, is not of much. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things we don't do. Yeah. 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 I, I I agree. Um, as far as, you know, projects that you've done over your career, are, you know, I know me personally, there is a few that always stick out that are sort of my babies that I will always cherish, whether it was because of the client or the, maybe the design itself or just the time in my life, right? Yeah. Are, are, there, are there projects that, that you, you know, think, you know, extraordinarily highly of uh, and look back on? Uh, yeah. It's, um, uh, <laughs> There's, there's usually a, at least one a year. I mean, it's what keeps it fun is that, and and you're right to say that the client makes a huge difference. I mean, if the client is somebody you really care about and respect, and and they want to do something really good, and they're fun to be with, uh, that makes even a fairly routine project memorable. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, one of our early projects was. Uh, uh, was the headquarter of the National Testing Center for Consumers Union. Um, they were moving from Mount Vernon over to a, taking an old office warehouse building on the sawmill in Yonkers, and uh, uh, they needed it turned into their National Testing Center. You know, this is Consumer Reports magazine. And uh, their advisor put us on the... Uh, the list of firms to be considered, and they didn't have anything completed. We had four or five good-sized projects under construction, but and they looked at it and said, well, nice young firm, but not ready for prime time, and dropped us. And the advisor said, no, no, you ought to meet this firm. And uh, so the number two person there who was running the projects said, okay, you know, have this Brad Perkins make an appointment, come see me. And I came into his office, he took one look at me and he said, you're back on the list. I was his daughter's soccer coach. And so, <laughs> and uh, the, uh, and they, they were an extraordinarily wonderful client and very smart people. And, um, and that was, both Mary Jean and I worked on that and the CEO what really clinched it was the CEO was a woman and she wanted to work with a woman architect. So she and Mary Jean bonded and, and we worked for them for 25 years. Yeah. But uh, there are others more recently, I mean, we're just down the street from uh, <clears throat> something. I spent 10 years on the TKTS booth in oh, Times yeah. Square. And, uh, you know, it was a, that was an extraordinary, again, wonderful client. I mean, it was really a, several clients. Wasn't but that a competition initially? It was an ideas competition uh, and two recent graduates in Australia submitted 
it was a one board ideas competition and uh, there were several hundred and, and uh, these two guys, Troy Ropia, uh, submitted the idea of a glowing red set of steps. So, okay. so there, it was their original idea. And then, and it captured the, the fancy and and the Times Square Alliance and uh, the the uh, theater development fund and others who were uh, set about wanting to do this, but nobody knew how to make this idea, which was just a rendering into a building. And uh, so finally, they hired an advisor, uh, Peter Lair, and he said he'd help them, but he needed to bring in an architect to work with him and Peter and I were friends and uh. and and uh, it took 10 years to turn that into wow. between raising the money and uh, and finally the last part of the budget uh, Bloomberg wanted to see it done and he made sure that there was funding for it and, okay. and then it and you know, and to be able to work on even that's probably the smallest project I've worked on in years, but you know, it has tremendous impact. Yeah. The, the other end of the scale, um, in 2008, I was uh, <clears throat> part of a large team that was competing for the to do the new master plan for the capital of Vietnam, Hanoi, and um, we were. Uh, mostly it was made up of a number of Korean firms and then we were a sub to one of, one of those firms. And then when I was asked to come over to be part of the entourage for the presentation, because the client was the prime minister mm -hmm. and, and the rest of the cabinet. And uh, I came, I was taking my sons-in-law to the Beijing Olympics. And so I came via Hanoi and, uh, and I was met at the airport by the lead people from the, uh, the Korean team. And they said, there's been a change of plans. The prime minister wants the lead planner to be an American. Uh, the, they're somewhat sensitive about being talked to, down to by their rich Asian. And the, the people who treat them these days as equals as they, we should, given our <clears throat> tragic history together, um, uh, the Americans are actually the preferred partners in many cases in Vietnam. So I made the presentations. We, I'd like to say it was the quality of my presentation got us the job, but the other two finalists who were two very well-known international firms uh, sort of misunderstood that, that <clears throat> what the problem was. It was to be a comprehensive master plan because communist country owns all the land and therefore the master plan controls all capital spending and controls all land use for 3,300 square kilometers of uh, for the capital of a wonderful country, you know, 100 million people and, and uh, with a long history. I mean, Hanoi is a thousand years old. Yeah. And wow. anyways, and I, there was a little problem at the end of 2008 that you might have read about. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> to have a place, a nice place to go for a week every month for the next 30 months was a high point. 
when you're traveling, um, is there a favorite office that you like to be in? Uh, well, it used to be China. Okay. It's probably Mumbai now. Oh. Uh, you know, China has been impossible, and the atmosphere under the current leadership is, it's, the government's getting much more intrusive. And I, you know, and I, but I went 154 times to China. Yeah, I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but India is not as much fun as, as China, but it's, it's uh, the projects we get to work on there are extraordinary as well. I and mean, I'm doing a, working on, among other things, a whole new university uh, out, right outside of Delhi that's been very successful so far. And, and we have another probably 10 years to go on it. But. And so is, is India really a, a future growth area, you think, for, for architecture? Um, well, it's now the largest country in the world. It has a growing economy. It is a terrible advertisement for democracy. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's so much easier to get things done in China where if the government wants it to happen, it happens. Yeah. The government can want it to happen in India and it still doesn't happen. But uh, uh, it's it's a very challenging place to work. So it's it's not like China and it does have an established architectural community. So there are really only three American firms that are active there right now. I mean, there are other firms that do occasional projects. So other firms were there and pulled out, but it's been very good to us. Yeah. What, what I find extraordinary about you and your, your career is that you're and you and I talked about this at one time when we went out to lunch, is that I find it very difficult for me to not get involved in all of the nitty gritty, to not be constantly checking my email and worrying about the smallest of little details, whether that's a cultural thing at the firm or an issue on a project or even, and I am very, very client focused. To me, you seem always client focused, you're always visiting clients, you're always on the road, you're always doing that. How do you find, how do you balance all of that? How do you balance the day-to-day -day pressures of sort of running a giant organization that's literally 10 times the size of mine and and still kind of be away and, and able to, to enjoy and, and be with those clients and let that let those relationships flourish? Well, you have to have partners. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a team sport and uh, I mean, Mary Jean, who is beginning to uh, pull back, uh, you know, spend more time up in the country. But, you know, she, for instance, was a terrific partner and uh, she her skills were very complimentary to mine. And she covered up some of the things I either didn't like to do or <laughs> or wasn't very good at. So and that's been true of a lot of other. I mean, we have a, we've been lucky to have a lot of very good people and who I trust, and so that I know that when, I, when I'm away, it's it's not everything is going to fall apart. So, <laughs> right. and, I mean, there's still and, and I have been trying to transfer things to the next generation for a while now, and. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
a lot of my former day-to-day headaches like you have uh, <laughs> are taken on by others now. So. Okay. And is that the plan is to transition the firm slowly to the next generation? Well, it's yeah, it better happen recently soon. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, we, we are committed to remaining employee owned. I mean, we've had people try and acquire us and, um, uh, and we've said no. And, and if you do that, the only way that makes sense is to try and do an orderly transition. I saw my father do it very badly. I mean, he was, was with all the best intentions, but he put in mandatory retirement at 65, thinking that his life expectancy was the same as his parents in the early 70s. And, uh, and then he lived to 90 and he was annoyed with himself for most of that time. <laughs> and uh, he, but he, he just turned it over cold turkey and Perkins and Will initially made the typical mistake that a lot of firms do, which is when they've had a very strong founder is that they say, well, we don't want that. So they go to management by committee and Perkins and Will did a committee of 12 and put the least offensive person in charge as president. And he got them involved in real estate development and caused them all sorts of problems. And but they recovered from it. But so I and I've written articles on the issue of transition. And so I'm trying to do it in an orderly way. And, you know, and the transition from the first to the second generation is usually the toughest transition period. And we're still in pro- it's a work in progress. Right? <laughs> Well, that's good. Do you foresee a point in which you're fully retired, laying out by the sun, or do you just like being that you'll always have a a leg in the race, I guess, too? Well, uh, I think I think my body will tell me it's uh, it's uh, I've been lucky. My wife and I good health and we just finished two hour Taekwondo class before this. And and uh, so. But I, at some point, realistically, you know, it's I certainly can't work it. I can't see working at this, the same pace. I, I've always worked forever because I've written enough, you know, some of my books on senior living. I've written about the issue of biological aging and I it, it doesn't happen at the same rate for everybody, but it happens. It eventually happens. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, Unless they invent that where they can turn off the genome and reverse your aging. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I mean, staying in good health is at least minimizes. Uh, you know, we've, we've lost two valuable principles this year, you know, to sudden death, uh, a heart attack and a brain aneurysm. And that's a real wake up call. Both of them younger than I am. Mm. Yeah, sorry to hear. Yeah. Um, switching gears to sort of the, the current, you know, state of, of um, the economy, um, the world economy. Uh, using your crystal ball, you've been through many ups and downs along the way. Where do you see sort of everything going right now? Is it as bad as people foresee coming in the next, you know, year or so? 
or is this, you know, are, are we already as, as architects even, are we already through some of the, the tough times that were, were COVID? Um, I think we have some more challenges uh, ahead of us. I, I think it's, it's uneven. There are, you know, there are project areas of, of projects that are still healthy and there are regions that are still healthy. I, I think the Northeast is in for a more challenging time than say California or uh, the West Coast or parts of the Southeast. It's, uh, it's uh, I think most of the firms here are uh, you know, battening down the hatches right at the moment. It, it's, uh, it's, it's not 2009, right. but, and it's not, when I first was running offices, it was the mid seventies and that, that was even worse. Mm. Uh, I've been through six, I think, good sized recessions. And uh, I don't, I don't see something as bad as 2009 or, or 1975, uh, but I don't, I don't see it being back to 2018 and 19 for a while. Yeah, yeah. How long, in your experience, do the recessions last for the art for architects? Uh, the bad ones generally have been about two years. Hmm. This one has already been underway for yeah. three years. And uh, and they're all different. Yeah. They're all different. I mean, it's hard to, you know, to lump them together because the craziness that led to 2000, you know, all the subprime and all the other dumb stuff that was going on <clears throat> was unique. And the OPEC-related, you know, things of the mid-'70s uh, combined, you know, I mean, that's when New York City was going bankrupt and all public construction stopped. I mean, it, that was, firms were shedding, you know, 80, 90% of their staff. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're all, and then COVID, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> How has COVID changed your, um, your office culture? And are you, are the different offices of all the offices around the country, are they treating you know, the return to office differently? Or is there one sort of size that fits all? No, they're, they're all different. Uh, partly also size, ease of commute, yep. things like that. And, but, um, yeah, but COVID, even though, thank God, the technology was there, you know, to get us through it, uh, and for us to continue to be reasonably productive, but it's not been a positive change. Uh, it's that this is, a, as I said earlier, it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. And if the team isn't together and they're just on teams or zoom or something, it's, uh, and it's particularly, I think, bad for the younger staff who need to sit next to more experienced people and, and experience how they're, what they're doing, and and how they work, and and doing that from your kitchen table is, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know uh, electronically is just not the same. 
Yeah, and I, I also find it sad. Uh, a young person coming out of school and now they're sitting at home in their kitchen table and they're not getting that interaction in an office, whether good or bad in the office. All of those play into your learning yeah. experience and how to learn architecture in a team environment, really, because you're right, it is a team sport. But it also is a there's the, the how do you work with your colleagues and what are you working on this yeah. day and how do you transfer that around? And it's it's yeah. more complicated than just sitting and writing computer code all day, which yeah. I also find sad. Someone sitting at home writing computer code all day on their at their kitchen table. But yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about um, your books. I mean, most architects are not great writers. That's me for sure. Hence why. We have a podcast right now. <laughs> um, you know what you've written nine books. Um, can you tell us a little bit about a few of the books? What what books are you you know come to mind that are your? Well, the, I, I'm I'm working on my tenth and probably likely to be my last. But it's the most ambitious, which is I'm writing a history of architectural practice in the U.S. from 1880, which is basically when my grandfather went off to school uh, to whenever I finished. So that's, you know, <laughs> maybe 2025. 20, and um, and it, it's how the, the profession has evolved and changed in each decade. And I profile prominent firms in each decade, talk about the changes and then use these firms to illustrate, you know, how the profession was changing and change is accelerating. So, you know, the changes in the last, you know, four, four decades are, you know, much greater than the changes in the previous, you know, 10. So, um, and it's been fun, you know, I, but I'm that, uh, <clears throat> but all the others, uh, well, I was asked, uh, the first first book I did was uh, a textbook on planning and design of elementary and secondary schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wrote it, uh, I it was asked by Steve Clement, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Artesial Record. Uh, he was doing a book series and he asked me which one I wanted to do. Um, and I said the school one because my father had done two textbooks on school design. And and I was very much did it in part because I wanted to do it, but also because I wanted to have it as a way to build our school practice. And um, and there's nothing like handing a textbook on the subject to a potential client and it tends to eliminate the yes. credentials. And and that book and the book I did on senior living were both translated into Chinese, and it helped a lot in China to be able to hand a textbook in Chinese. That, um, so then I was I used to teach at Harvard in the summer program on starting a design firm, and so the publisher I worked for, uh, Wiley, asked would my co. Uh, teacher and I would we turn that into a, a book and then we did a second edition of that book uh, I've done two on international practice uh, the latest one was 2021 came out in 2021 uh, talking about 
the basics of building and running an international practice. And there's a joke in our family that there's a publisher parish clause and everybody writes. And so I think I have seven of seven of the bookshelves in my study are are just books by family members. Oh wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, my well, my grandmother was a writer illustrator and fifty of the books are hers. But wow. uh, but my brother and the one at Harvard has you know a whole long list and then other members of the family I and and uh, I mean I I'm included on that shelf uh, some close friends books also I mean, my last college roommate was went on to be a famous ice hockey player and he's written eight books oh cool yeah. who's that Ken Dryden oh yeah yeah he yeah, was very cool. yeah Hall of Fame yeah, he's still a very close friend. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's cool. So as we wrap up, um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to tell the listeners? Oh, I think this has been a fun conversation. I mean, I, you know, we have a lot of shared experience and, and we could probably go on and... Oh, forever. Yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have you back for part two. <laughs> <laughs> So, Brad, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Um, you're truly a legend in the industry, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I think this is uh, it's been fun. Great. Awesome. So to see and read more about Brad, uh, you obviously can go to the uh, Perkins Eastman website, uh, PerkinsEastman.com. And very cool, Brad actually has a Wikipedia page. Uh, this is the first guest I had that uh, has a Wikipedia page. I don't know if you even know that you have a Wikipedia page. Uh, you just look for uh, Bradford Perkins Architect and it's on there. I searched for myself to see maybe if I had one, but apparently there's a Christian Giordano who's a Swiss um, anthropologist. But, you know, so very cool. So well, there is another Bradford Perkins, but uh, I think he's a professor at the University of Michigan. So Okay, this one's definitely you. So. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Christian.